Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every other week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data. Today, I have the joy of talking to Dr. Susan Friedman about the hierarchy of behavior change for dog training. This is so central to what we do and something that I'm incredibly passionate about, which is ensuring that our dogs are excellent at the work they do while maintaining the highest quality of life possible for them. So I really think you guys are going to enjoy this. And as we get into it, you know, something that Dr. Friedman and I didn't talk about, but I think is relevant is also thinking about the concept of non-intrusive sampling. So particularly for our listeners who are coming from a conservation biology or ecology standpoint, you know, one of the things that I think relates to this humane hierarchy really well is the idea of how can we get the data that we want without harming or stressing our study animals. And I think sometimes we're really good about thinking about that as far as, you know, can we do camera traps or hair traps or um, those plaster uh, track traps, um, rather than darting an animal and taking a blood sample or putting a big transmitter on an animal, you know, how can we do gather all the data that we need non-invasively? Can we use a conservation detection dog in a way that isn't going to stress out our study animals? And I think sometimes we're really good about thinking about that, but we forget a little bit about how we can interact with our conservation detection dogs um, more, more intentionally and in a way that also is non-invasive to our dogs as we're training them. So um, I hope that you guys can kind of keep that in mind as we go forward. And I know that Dr. Friedman and I get a little nerdy here. It's a little, it's a little bit of an esoteric talk. So I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, and if you've got follow-up questions or anything like that, you can always join our Patreon for $3 a month or just comment on you know, the Instagram or Facebook post where you see this being shared. And I would love to hear your thoughts and we can address um, anything in a little bit more concrete of a manner going forward. I'm so excited to get to this interview, but first I do have to remind you guys that all of our field vehicle repair fundraisers are still ongoing. So if you go over to where you find this, these show notes, you can purchase a t-shirt, a canine conservationist t-shirt, proceeds to that, help fundraise for our field vehicle repairs, or you can just donate directly to our GoFundMe. Um, so as I record, the van is, um, it is functioning, it is here, we are living out of it, it is beautiful, but I put... Um, about $15,000 of repairs on my personal credit card to make it happen. So any amount of support that you can offer to help offset those costs and get us up and running is going to be incredibly helpful. We do also have goals eventually of adding crash-proof crates for the dogs and getting some other field equipment. Um, so, you know, we've got a long way to go as as a little little teeny tiny baby nonprofit and any support you can offer is incredibly helpful. So, um the last thing before we get to it, um, you guys can also really help support this this podcast by um, reviewing the podcast wherever you find it, uh, particularly on Apple Podcasts. So if you haven't already, please do go on over there. Um, I plan on reading those reviews out loud on the episodes, but right now we don't have any new ones for me to read. So go ahead and um, do that right now. Dr. Friedman and I thank you profusely. And without further ado, let's get to this interview. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Friedman. It's so great to have you Thank here. you. Thank you. Really good to see you and to yeah. hear you're enjoying summer. It's such a great season for us now. So, Oh my gosh. Yeah. We're coming up on the longest days of the year, which just always, I, 
I love them. I love living far north where we get, I mean, the sun has been setting at like 1030 here and it's yeah, been getting off at 11. Yeah. It's amazing. That's so yeah. great. I hear you. I like it too. Yeah. So let's kind of start out, you know, as we were talking right before we started recording, we've got a variety of our listeners. Some of our listeners are already really familiar with you and your work, and some may have never heard of you or, you know, not really know a whole lot about, you know, the difference between differential reinforcement of incompatible or... or um, yeah, I mean, sometimes <laughs> I still get tripped up. So let's kind of start out with what is the hierarchy of behavior change? Um, and then we'll get into why it matters. Okay. Well, if you would um, allow me to kind of make the current, uh, it might make more sense to talk about the basics of behavior change first, mm -hmm. because that's kind of a prerequisite knowledge mm -hmm. set for understanding the hierarchy. Um, so you interrupt me if I go too far afield from what you intended, you know, your okay. audience, um, and I congratulate you on these podcasts and that diverse audience that you have, because dissemination is certainly one of our most important missions, um, Thank you. to, uh, help change the world, to improve mm -hmm. the quality of, of life for all, all learners, human and non-human. Um, so a simple way to consider the basic uh, principles and technology of behavior change is to think about it in terms of the smallest unit of analysis, which we call the ABCs. Um, and those stand for the antecedents, the things that happen before behavior, and consequences, the things that happen after. Mm -hmm. And the B, of course, stands for behavior. And what's useful about this antecedent behavior consequence unit is that it really reflects our most basic rule, which is behavior is always conditional. It's always influenced by the antecedent conditions or environment and the consequences. Mm -hmm. So when I teach that, um, I make the point that, first of all, behavior is not a label. We need to describe clearly, operationally, what we see animals do when it comes to teaching and learning. And antecedents are broken down into different categories that influence uh, the strength of the reinforcer that the animal will choose to behave to move towards. Um, and um, let's see, I had a, I had kind of this syllogism in my head. And so we think about the different antecedents, we learn about them and empower ourselves with good antecedent arrangement. Um, the goal with antecedents in general is to make the right behavior easier so you can catch it with reinforcement mm -hmm. so that rates of reinforcement stay high and mm -hmm. very often especially in the search and rescue kinds of um serve or service dog applications uh, airport security who i teach every year as well um people will say but it won't be easy when we need them to do the behavior we taught and I remind them that the beginning of the behavior and the lesson plan doesn't look like the end behavior and the Absolutely. lesson plan. So initially, the antecedent goal is to make the right behavior easier with our mm -hmm. arrangements. And then we can fade in difficulty as we need to, to get the kind of um, creativity and industriousness and persistence that you need with a working animal. Absolutely. And then... 
we can turn to consequences to finish up our unit. And um, I encourage people to think about consequences uh, bigger than just reward, uh, because consequences are the reason why behavior evolved. It, mm-hmm. The consequences are the purpose we behave. Um, we behave to get something or to get away. We behave to operate on the environment to change it so that it reveals positive reinforcers and removes aversive stimuli. Mm-hmm. So it's also consequences. Another, I think, important way of thinking about consequences, in addition to the purpose we behave to get or to get away from something, um, but it's also feedback. I mean, it's such an extraordinary planetary arrangement that consequences give us feedback about the adequacy of our behavior. So Mm -hmm. for a dog in training, for example, who doesn't earn the reinforcer, they are able to take that withholding experience and consider what to do differently to have better control over the trainer's reinforcers. So Mm -hmm. antecedents set the stage for behavior, make them as easy as possible at first, Behavior should be described very unambiguously when Mm -hmm. we're training. And consequences are not just rewards for the right behavior. They're the reason we give animals for behaving in a certain way. Mm -hmm. And they give feedback to the animal about whether to persist or to pivot to revise what they do. Yeah. Yeah. So is that a good sort of overview from a science point of view? Any questions there? No, I don't think so quite yet. I always this is these are the times where I wish we could have a panel of ten listeners to see if any of them have anything. Questions, yeah. Um, I mean, and I think one of the things that is, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but it is interesting in kind of the detection dog realm is that our our behavior. I think a lot of times, you know, we might say, "Well, we want the dog to find the scat." That's not a singular behavior, and we have to as we're thinking about what we actually want our animals to be doing, we need to break those behaviors down into smaller and smaller chunks um, and thinking about, okay, we want the dog to be searching and sniffing for odor. And then that builds into a chain of once they've found odor, we want them to follow to the source of the odor. And then ideally we want them to alert. And I think a lot of people at times we get really stuck on the alert or really stuck on the sourcing or, or whatever it is. And, um, I don't know. It's just, it's been on my mind lately with um, my puppy Niffler. I've been uh, working on building his alert. So teaching him to actually lie down and tell me when he's found a scat. And um, I took him out for training two days ago and saw just a massive decrease in enthusiasm from him um, in his search. He normally Good to observe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he normally comes out with his tail up and his nose is down and he's ready to go. He's often vocalizing as I'm putting the leash on. I'm a little bit overexcited at this point for for my taste. Um, and, and he wasn't. And, um, you know, we had to take a step back and really focus on, okay, we're going to make the, the sourcing of the odor and that aspect of his work really, really easy so that then I can put a ton of reinforcement into the bucket of alerting because I think I was pushing him too hard to do all of those bits all at once. So anyway, that's just when we are talking about our ABCs within the detection dog world, you know, our, our behavior isn't just like, we can't just call it searching or just call it finding. Um, it's, it's so, so much more than that. So, which That's I'm right. sure is, is the 
things. It is an interesting um, thing to note about the particular kind mm-hmm. of training um, that you that you're doing and your listeners may be doing. Um, when you say search or whatever the cue is to start that uh, mm-hmm. class of behaviors that we call search and alert, um, we're not talking about one behavior. So we would yeah. call that. Uh, a flexible or a changing contingency that is the a the b that is required given a given the q the behaviors that are required in order to get the feedback that you did it you're right that is to get reinforced are really very variable depending on every situation they're searching in. Mm -hmm. So in that instance of learning and behavior, where the contingencies are changing, we have a very different approach to teaching in the long run than we do when we teach fixed contingencies. Mm -hmm. For example, by fixed, I mean a sit always means sit. Go Mm -hmm. to place always means go to place. But when you say search, it means turn on your creativity, right? Yeah. turn on your industriousness, turn on your persistence, because reinforcement um, may be lean until you mm-hmm. get closer to, uh, to the alerting stimulus. Absolutely. So even with that, though, I will say that we don't start um, at the deep end of the pool. Absolutely. Even with that, we can reduce errors with antecedent arrangement so that we maintain a very high rate of reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And then in the long run, as this class of behaviors is mastered, we can start to thin the reinforcement to prepare for persistence. And we can start to vary the situations in which it occurs to plan for creativity. And we can start rewarding, selecting for really industrious, enthusiastic Mm -hmm. behavior. Um, And so... Yeah, it's, it is a unique application, a very thrilling application um, of our basic principles and our techniques like reinforcement, antecedent arrangement, shaping approximations, mm-hmm. introducing errors to build that mm-hmm. persistence and resilience. Um, but I always remind people that the beginning of that looks just like the beginning of teaching mm-hmm. a set. It's a very fixed, controlled, high rate of reinforcement plan. And -hmm. it doesn't get kind of hairy until you start seeing some of that, uh, the basic skills being mastered. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we implement a lot of, you know, back chaining. So basically, I'll start with, you know, the odor is just a couple inches away, and we're just building reinforcement for that. And, you know, going from there, and then, you know, adding in that difficulty, as we go, but you know, we don't have to, that's not what we're supposed to be talking about. We could go down any number of rabbit holes today. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, we've got our antecedents and our behaviors and our consequences. And so how does that then relate to our hierarchy of behavior change? And where does that come in when we're thinking about how to structure our training? So those ABCs sort of describe not only the way behavior on the planet works, across species. We're all responding to cues and behaving for a reason, for outcomes. Um, But it also um, generated the teaching techniques that we use also across species. They're very, very similar from kids to dogs to orangutans and bears and snakes and Mm -hmm. all sorts of animals that whose trainers that I, I work with and coach. 
And so those techniques or procedures for changing behavior uh, kind of, it's, it's a big toolbox of strategies. And what I did that formed the hierarchy was I took a shot at um, interleaving the procedures most commonly used to change behavior with an ethical guideline that is called the least intrusive procedure. And that ethical guideline, least intrusive or least restrictive, there's it goes by many names, but the um, philosophical and ethical concept is the same. Uh, the least intrusive procedure asserts across professions, you see this in law, you see it in medicine, um, you see it in bioethics. I have examples of very similar hierarchies. Uh, the philosophy and the ethical stance is that when you're interacting with another organism, if you will, another individual, especially where there's a differential in power, and since we're holding the positive reinforcers in our pouch, there's a differential there. Um, then when you interact with them towards a goal, you should interact with the least uh, intrusive, effective solution. So mm -hmm. with that ethical standard in mind, which came from my background in special education, where we have that ethical standard, least intrusive mm -hmm. uh, procedure, I um, built this hierarchy that starts with a healthy animal in an appropriate environment. Mm -hmm. And if changing behavior uh, by improving nutrition or medical health will um, solve the problem, then that's where we should start because it's effective and least intrusive, generally speaking. Mm -hmm. And then the next step on the hierarchy to change behavior is antecedent arrangement. Mm -hmm. So now your listeners are more um, brushed off on what I mean when I say antecedent arrangement. Yeah. So we talk about clear cues, strong motivating operations for the reinforcers we're going to use, and, um, and uh, arranging the setting to make the right behavior easier. So if it means you know, starting with a more salient box when you're teaching the scent versus mm -hmm. starting right off with hiding it behind, you know, the back of the garage. And yeah. that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or just closing windows so we don't have airflow, you know. Absolutely. That's a great example. Uh-huh. That doing those things to make the right behavior easier would be the next least intrusive procedure. Mm -hmm as long as it's effective. And mm -hmm. then we get into learning, which is positive reinforcement would be the next on this, on mm -hmm. this scale. And by positive reinforcement, what I'm talking about is selecting for behavior with consequences. So we uh, reinforce in, in shaping, we reinforce the approximation that gets us closer to the end goal, keeping a very high rate of reinforcement and responding to what the animal's behavior, that data flow, is telling us about the effectiveness and the intrusiveness of our approach. And then it goes up from there, where the uh, intrusiveness starts to narrow down, very generally speaking. This isn't describing any particular instance. It's a general ethical guideline. Um, and so we move from positive reinforcement to the differential reinforcement mm -hmm. strategies, which combine positive reinforcement for the desired behavior 
and extinction, that is withholding the reinforcer for the wrong answer or the undesired mm -hmm. behavior. And then in one level, I put together negative punishment, negative reinforcement, and um, extinction alone. Mm -hmm. And then the last that should be used the least is positive punishment, where we deliver an aversive stimulus contingent dependent on um, the undesired or missed behavior, the not correct mm -hmm. response. And I've arranged the graphics on this hierarchy to either show it going up or going down, but it's always in a funnel shape where yeah. the, that is to denote the frequency we should be using these procedures. Mm -hmm. And so positive punishment would be in the smallest use part of this ladder. Yeah. The rug gets very small. And antecedent arrangement, positive reinforcement, and wellness, the first three rungs, are the broadest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, it's funny. I'm actually, I'm over at a friend's house right now who's also a dog trainer, and she actually has the printout of it as a roadmap um, on her kitchen table. I should have brought it in so that we could, we okay. could reference it. I mean, people at home wouldn't be able to see it. And in the in the roadmap version of it there's also kind of some some speed bumps and yield signs right to kind of remind us to 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 to, to ask others for for assistance um as we're considering moving up in in levels of intrusiveness right yeah the perfect of the 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 purpose of the roadmap version is um got speed bumps once you leave wellness and the scene arrangement, positive reinforcement, the the yield signs and the speed bumps get bigger and bigger. And then just before positive punishment, it's a really huge uh, bump and a detour sign and a stop sign. So mm -hmm. these are all just graphic ways to remind people um, to think before they act that our training should never be um, reactive based on what the dog does, that we need to build our skills systematically so that we're able to, um, I mean, the highest level of expertise is being able to think on your feet and stay in the less intrusive procedural areas. Mm -hmm. And that thinking on your feet, when a dog responds in a certain way that requires you change your plan, really takes a lot of practice and supervision by mentors, I think. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm so glad we kind of brought that up and it's, it's fun. Um, so we just had an episode not too long ago that I, I, it's already aired, so it'll come out quite a while, while later for people who are hearing us now, but with Michael Shikashio and what we were talking about primarily in this episode was the idea of how as conservation dog handlers, we can keep prey animals safe. And we were talking to him primarily about muzzles, but we also touched on you know, keeping the dogs on leash and using long lines. We touched a little bit on selection of the dogs, training of the dogs to really put a lot of positive reinforcement into the bucket of focused searching around distractions and all of that before you even start considering adding an aversive to try to squash a dog's desire to go chase a squirrel or a rabbit. Um, and I think that's something that we often... I mean, just in general, kind of off-leash communities here in, in the United States tend to skip right ahead 
to other much more aversive things. And that's that's not uncommon in the in the detection dog world. Um, no, so, it's not. And it has a history of controlling dog behavior with aversive stimulation. And I think we all have that history, right? Mm-hmm. Most of us grew up in a world where parents, teachers, and neighbors controlled our childy, childish behavior um, with threats and positive punishers that mm-hmm. is delivery of aversive stimuli. So it really represents a huge change um, society-wide mm-hmm. and globally to say, you know what, there are other ways to do this. And if we think about an ethical value um, and agree that being effective in the least intrusive way, the way that produces the least loss of animals' personal control, um, then we will explore these other procedures. If we don't agree that reducing intrusiveness, that is loss of control, um, in the world is of value, then we just don't agree on how to train conservation dogs. But once we agree, we have common ground that being effective and less intrusive can be combined and is our profession-wide value, Mm -hmm. then we start to learn these alternative procedures to change behavior. And in the last 50 years, and especially in the last 15 years, we have demonstrated time and time again that even our most complex behaviors can be taught Mm -hmm. with uh, leaving the animal in control of its own outcomes, its own reinforcers. So I have a kind of prompt that I give myself when I'm working on something very difficult. So I'm not teaching conservation dogs, but I am working with elephants engaging in self-injurious behavior mm-hmm. or snakes that are in, in, in um, engaging in, in t- its tail biting and mutilation. I mean, oh, these God. are difficult parrots that pluck. These are difficult mm-hmm. problems. Um, and... I say to myself that the question is not, can I do it? Can I create a program and coach trainers to solve these problems, replace those problem behaviors with successful behaviors? The real question I need to ask myself and hold myself to is, can anybody train it? Mm -hmm. And if anybody can train it, then that's the standard that I have to meet. I have mm-hmm. to learn how to do it from those experts and mm-hmm. practice with supervision until I too am able to do what those people can do. And I think that might be helpful um, for your audience as well. You know, we don't, we shouldn't use procedures just because they're effective. Effectiveness yeah. alone is not enough. Yeah. And we shouldn't use procedures just because we happen to be good at those and don't have enough experience at others. But we're really asking a lot of people to take what has been effective and say, effectiveness alone is not enough. Now you need to consider intrusiveness. Um, It's asking people to give up some effectiveness Mm -hmm. to learn a new set of approaches. And so I do have compassion and patience for um, people changing to more contemporary uh, humane strategies. Yeah, it feels clumsy at first. And I know one of the things that I've I've seen some in this field is, you know, it takes remembering to bring other reinforcers with you and remembering that you you have these options because particularly one of the things we see in this field is that we select for dogs that are 
so intensely mm-hmm. obsessed with their toy reinforcer that um, it's really hard to find another reinforcer, reinforcer that they will accept in the presence of a toy. But there's also a lot of fear culturally um, around the idea of using that toy reinforcer for anything other than finding the target. Um, so one of the things I've worked on with my dog is, you know, eating and receiving food is a behavior and I can work on that and turn That's that right. into you can train it. <laughs> exactly. And to turn that into a lower level reinforcer that I, so I can reward my dog for recalling off of a rabbit with food and then send him back to the search. And hopefully when he does find his target, you know, he's going to be just as excited about that ball and, you know, thinking about different ways to do that. But that culturally that, that requires a shift. That means I need to remember to bring food with me. Right. Um, and I and mean, not just a shift, but it requires first gaining the knowledge. Like mm-hmm. how does one train um, a variety of reinforcers by mm-hmm. pairing with the most preferred reinforcer? That's a technique. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of science behind it. Stimulus, stimulus, pairing and mm-hmm. developing conditional reinforcers. And mm-hmm. that's something people would need to have knowledge and skill to do. And then yeah. your idea also that it, there's more um response effort perhaps mm-hmm. once you decide to go in these directions and that um and that's something that we're responsible for doing as professionals is using whatever mm-hmm. response um effort is required uh so for example trainers will often say to me you know but if i don't carry a, pr- a press board a board to protect them from a charging animal what will I do if I run out of food reinforcers? And my answer is always running out of food reinforcers is something that should only happen one time in your career. And then you should never be unprepared like that again. And you should be looking to see what you've got, how it's depleting and making mm-hmm. decisions on that basis. So mm-hmm. yeah, it does require a very different headset and being prepared for a lot of different occurrences is part of it. Uh, And any good teacher will tell you the same. And I'll also mention that, you know, you're hitting on some of our very important principles. For example, if an animal will only work for one reinforcer type, we have to question whether or not they're living an enriched enough life that their behavior, all their behaviors are only used for the purpose of a single outcome. Um, So that's worthy of discussion. Um, Certainly, We should also add on the table that naturally animals have evolved to find variety reinforcing given a variety upbringing and novelty tends to be a reinforcer across species given novelty in their rearing history. So Mm -hmm. the things that you mentioned is, uh, yeah, is they're all related to principles and procedures that are known. And it's not like we have a ceiling on our knowledge and our techniques. It's constantly being improved. But I'll tell you the basic principles, they don't change very often. They have really stood the test of time. But we do see improvements in how we use the techniques that come from them. And that's always very exciting. So it isn't sort of your grandfather's dog training anymore. You know, it's not even what I came in 25 years ago with. There have been some very profound revisions Mm -hmm. of techniques 
to reduce intrusiveness, raise reinforcement, raise an animal's autonomy to behave for chosen outcomes. All of this is coming together in very exciting ways. And there is nothing that I know of about the um, working dog scenario that would pull them outside of the way that behavior for the rest of the species on the planet works. We right. may need to refine the tools to match the animals and the situations, but the basic principles are going to be the same. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree. And I mean, I've only been in the field of dog training for a, just under 10 years now. Um, and I, I feel like I've seen a lot of shifts even in those 10 years, which really isn't much time at all. And right. you know, even kind of talking about the idea of helping a dog learn to eat in a variety of environments and getting them to accept a variety of reinforcers around in the presence of other reinforcers. Um, Absolutely. That's not something I don't think I'd heard of until a year or two ago, um, which it probably isn't just that the field has progressed there. It's probably just that I'm getting deeper into it. Um, I doubt that's, yeah, that's yeah, the problems you have, you know, drive the solutions you look for. Mm -hmm. When you describe that, I jotted down autism. I mean, that is exactly the program that we need for many, many children with autism is teaching them to eat more than just raisins, to teach a variety <laughs> of foods, mm -hmm. and uh, to teach them to eat in a variety of locations instead of just in a rigid red chair mm -hmm. on a white table with Spotty the stuffed dog to the left, not the right, to the left. Mm -hmm. So the kind of um, narrowness that at once produces that drive, we can call it, for going after whatever they're searching for, um, works against us in terms of sort of a quality of life, which is defined as variety and flexibility. We can have both. We can mm -hmm. have both. But I think that understanding that we really can have both is relatively new for yeah. society wide. And I hope that the hierarchy hopes, I hope that the hierarchy helps us promote some head scratching. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe someone who has very deep expertise in this application will find that they can rearrange the hierarchy somewhat for their work. It's not meant to be a rigid recipe, but mm -hmm. it, it is meant to have people stop at those speed bumps and reconsider, is this really the only way to get the behavior that I need? And if it is, we do move along that continuum. But most of the time, we can get what we need accomplished without using that cultural fog that we've all come through that has mm -hmm. us um, demanding, commanding, forcing, and coercing, even mm -hmm. though we have techniques to be effective and not use those strategies anymore. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, um, oh gosh, I had a thought. Well, I've lost it. It'll, it'll come back. I always jot them down because they go in my head and out of my head faster <laughs> than I can keep track. 
Yeah. Oh, you know, and it was it was actually kind of on this idea, um, you know, of the ethics of looking at these dogs that have this kind of over the top level of drive these this obsession with the reinforcers, whatever we want to call it. And it's something I've thought about, you know, I think one day I will probably breed a couple litters of dogs. I don't know if I want to be a breeder, but I'm interested in, in the genetics of it and everything. And um it's something I've thought about quite a lot as far as particularly my older border collie. I feel that his level of obsession with his toys and with his reinforcers is not mentally healthy. I, I really, I joke a lot with my friends, but it's not really a joke that if we put in a, uh, him in an MRI and showed him a bouncing tennis ball, I think his brain would light up exactly like a heroin addict. Uh, probably um, would. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it's something I've been working on pretty consciously with my younger dog to try to get the level of drive to do the work and the enthusiasm for the work while still having him have more varied hobbies, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and my older dog, particularly as we've, we've gotten more into trail running and more into a lot of off-leash exercise and those sorts of things, it, it's helped a lot, but he's still... You know, even we went on a trail run just before we hopped on this recording and he still, he pretty much wants to pick up a pine cone and carry it and he'll drop it at the feet of everyone we see. And even oh. when he's enjoying other things, it's kind of still his always like, it's like maybe, but maybe they'll throw it, you know, maybe I'll right. get that next. Um, he has a huge a reinforcement history for doing mm -hmm. that behavior. And every time he drops it in front of a stranger who then melts and picks it up for him, <laughs> that's uncontrolled reinforcers oh, being absolutely. delivered as well. So it is a challenge. Um, but mm -hmm. if I were to predict, extrapolate from my knowledge of the science and experience applying it with children and non-human animals, um, I would predict that you can uh, meet that sort of a peak preference for a certain class of behaviors, but a nice fall around variety. And I agree that at least conceptually, it seems to me that that is a higher quality of life than, you know, I think about, I think about um, things like uh, channeling kids into gymnastics at the exclusion of all else, you know, building mm -hmm. an Olympiad. And in so many ways, you are building Olympiads with the training that you're doing and the urgency of the job we want the dogs to do. But you hear so many of those young Olympiads saying that, they wish they had skills for a more varied life, that after the Olympics were over and they took their medal home, they were really depressed and at a loss. You know, so I think we can kind of cobble together a story by which we could defend the idea that variety is important to healthy living. And I really applaud you for that self-evaluation because mm -hmm. I've seen dogs just like you're describing mm -hmm. and I kind of stand back and I watch them they are tense. The muscles are tense mm -hmm. all day long, just waiting for that moment. I mean, all day long, just waiting for that moment where they can do um, what they've what they've been trained to do to the exclusion, really, of other things. So you and yeah. your colleagues will lead the way. You will show us that we can get an Olympiad who also knows how to knit, cook. Yeah. <laughs> throw a great cocktail party, right, yeah. and access other reinforcers. Um, I think yeah. that we are 
evolutionarily, biologically prepared to have that flexibility. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to talk about the genetics because uh, there's no question that our behavior today is the result of three sources, I always say, our genetic tendencies, our learning history, so that covers your dog, the genetic tendency, the learning history, and current conditions. And Mm -hmm. people sorely underestimate how current conditions can flex and modify the Mm -hmm. first two, both the learning history and the genetic tendencies. Mm -hmm. So the idea that genes are fixed and you can't influence them with environmental arrangement is is thoroughly dispensed with. No Mm -hmm. genetic scientist would disagree that genetics are our tendencies and then the environment selects for them. Yeah, I've really noticed. So I've had barley now for about four, four and a half years. And um, for the last three-ish years, we've had a pretty strict no fetch in the house rule. And that, you know, that alone has really helped him just learn to relax. And I remember it was probably a year into owning him before he actually solicited petting and really seemed to enjoy petting and cuddling. And I think it took that much kind of detox away from fetch as an option um for it's him an interesting think, idea yeah yeah it really you know it took it took that um i i think um and you know definitely again going forward with with any puppies that i'm raising i'm really thinking about balancing all those reinforcers for them and and building their lives in a way that we can we they can have this really full and enriched life while still, you know, doing, doing the job that we want them to do. And I I really think we can have our cake and eat it too. I think so too. And I think that we're genetically prepared for that Mm -hmm. flexibility and uh, focus both at once. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We just have to figure out what are the optimal, effective, least intrusive procedures. And then there isn't going to be one set of recipes, right? It's going to always vary based on the trainer, the handler, the dog, the settings in which they're working, you know, so recipes are, uh, lately I've been saying the goal in the long run is to go from following recipes for beginners and intermediate, and then going from that level of cook to being a chef where instead of putting in a quarter teaspoon of pepper because the recipe says so, you understand that there are 35 different kinds of peppers. You understand what they all do differently when they interact with tomatoes and you pick the right pepper and then you taste it, change your mind, Mm -hmm. add a different one, you know, and that for me, that chef level um, sort of off the leash of recipes, you know, um, Mm -hmm. is, is how I think about really high expertise in any field. And we have to acknowledge that people who are beginning and even in the middle of learning to be experts, you know, require recipes that systematically loosen up to personal judgment and dialogue with the dog they're working with. Yeah, absolutely. And I I love the recipe analogy as well, as far as thinking, you know, if I want to sit down and make a pasta dish, I'm very comfortable doing that without a recipe at this point. I can I can be a little bit of a chef with pasta. Uh-huh. But when it comes to curries, I still <laughs> at least need, I have a very handy magnet that kind of says, you know, is your curry to this or to that? And it kind of oh, suggests. Oh, that's interesting. 
different things to add um, to fix your curry. I'm getting pretty good about, you know, if I pull out my spices, I can make an okay curry, but I still often have to at least reference <laughs> my magnet to kind of correct, like, oh God, I put in too much cumin this time. Like, right. what do I put in? <laughs> right, uh, good for the magnet. And hopefully the least <laughs> intrusive hierarchy is mm -hmm. like your magnet. Yeah. It's just saying, okay, you're seeing this. This is your need for training, your goal. But mm -hmm. let's stop and consider, can we be effective and give the animal more voice? Exactly. That force and coercion take away. I think many of us are pretty comfortable with teaching a dog to sit or lie down or stay using pretty much exclusively positive reinforcement. I would say even like our conservation biologist listeners, most of them probably pretty much know how to lure and reward their dog into a sit. Um, and, and that might be their, their pasta. <laughs> and then as right. we go on into thinking about, and, and then even within the world of teaching a dog to do scent detection, the vast majority of that is taught really, really heavily with positive reinforcement. There's very, very little anything else really in, in that aspect of it. But then as soon as we're starting to add in distractions or prey animals or any of those sorts of things, that's where I think we do need, you know, my curry magnet or your humane hierarchy. And supervisors, you know, mentors. Yes. Um, I think that's really well described. Um, what you're just, what you're talking about to my ears is about fading. The technique called fading, which of course is many, many techniques where we either fade in stimuli that is like distractions or we fade out high rates of reinforcement to build persistence, let's say. Okay. So the concept of prompting and fading, I think, is not well studied among animal trainers in, in general, dog trainers as well. And that's an area where there is a lot of great information in special education with children. So you might okay. start teaching a child to stop when they see a red light or a stop sign at a crosswalk by simulating it in the safety of a classroom. And then mm -hmm. you bring it out into the hallway and then you bring it out into, you know, just the area around the school and you keep fading in those difficulty that those distractors, um, that difficulty until you get what is a really generative knowledge. Wherever they go, they see that sign or that light and they know to stop and they do so quickly and comfortably. So mm -hmm. fading is an area to dig into. And I would recommend, which a lot of dog trainers don't know, that the place to look is in the special ed behavior analysis yeah. literature, because we had some of the very similar um, challenges to solve mm -hmm. with the kids that had special learning needs. And yeah, because of us. This one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting. Um, prompting sort of fell out of style. Um, mm -hmm. In dog training, I watched it sort of come in like a fashion statement. We're not going to prompt anymore. It's all free shaping. There isn't even a phrase free shaping in behavior analysis um, <laughs> for special ed. It's just shaping with or without prompts. Uh -huh. And then um, I realized I thought pro part of the problem that made people dispense with prompting was they didn't understand how to fade their prompts. So rather than mm -hmm. fading their prompts with skill and knowledge, they just abandoned prompting altogether. So when you say that people know how to use a food lure to lure into sit, I think that's true, but I don't think that many people know how to fade that lure mm -hmm. quickly 
based on what the dog is telling you. And that in a more complex picture is really what you're describing when you say, I need to get that dog from a box in the garage out into the field where there are turbines <laughs> and, you know, osprey and all sorts bunnies of distractors and- out there. <laughs> bunnies, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. yeah. But That's we can monks. do it. Right. <laughs> but we can do it. There's just no question about it anymore. Yeah. 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 And I love, you know, I, I actually really enjoy the process of like layering in these distractions and just, you know, thinking of like weird things to start introducing to my puppy just so that it's, you know, it's different, but not necessarily harder, you know, like well, there's just a traffic cone in the middle of your search area. That's, that's not, great. that's not scary necessarily. It's not necessarily tempting, but it's just, it's just different, you know, something and then, novel. Yeah. yeah. And that early rearing history is so important. We have a mm-hmm. wonderful um, lab that my mm-hmm. husband hunts with named Ray after Ray Coppinger, who you may know oh, from the dog yes. training world, a wonderful friend and colleague before he passed away. Mm-hmm. And um, Ray was raised by people who train dogs for diabetic alert with children. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna, Oblaser Merti in in Austria. And um, she actually brought me the pup from Austria in the cabin, which was so Uh great. And um, she raised him and showed us videos. They were remarkable, Kayla. She would have that litter of pups walking across um, silver space blankets in and Uh out of uh, brooks and rivers. They had a tea party where everybody wore a scary mask. I mean, she is really an expert at providing this super early novel variety filled scary, Mm -hmm. unscary. It never gets to be scary because you build dogs who look at you with a scream mask on and say, what does my human have for me today? As opposed to, ah, I've got to get out of here. (laughs) So that early rearing history really matters. And and she she gave that history to that litter of pups. And we can Mm -hmm. really see it in our now two and a half year old Mm -hmm. um, lab. When it starts to thunder and lighten outside, he goes to the door. He wants (laughs) to go out. And he's been known to sit in the middle of a thunderstorm out on the porch, just looking up, watching it, enjoying the light. I mean, I've had many dogs. Many who are not afraid of storms, but never any for whom storms were very positive, you know, stimulation. Yeah. So Isn't that cool? It can I, be done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can be I, done. I got a little bit of flack um, for, so my, my older dog, Barley, is a rescue. I got him from a shelter I used to work for. And then my younger dog, Niffler, is from a fancy pants breeder um, who did a, did a lot of really similar things. It was her first litter of puppies, but she did a really great job. And, um, you know, I, 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 again, I got, I got a little bit of pushback from some people who were disappointed that I wasn't continuing to show Help that you can be working dogs. dog stuff with a, with a rescue dog. And, you know, I, I would like to continue that in the future, but I will say my puppy kindergarten class that we went to, um, and I was an assistant teaching there before I had my own puppy once a month, we do um, a big, like kind of obstacle course. We'll have like a, a swimming pool full of plastic bottles and skateboards and all sorts of fun stuff out and I felt like I knew I had really made the right choice with my puppy when the first time I brought him there, he was, you know, 12 weeks old or whatever. 
and he just saw the skateboard and he marched right up to it and he got on it. You know, I, I, I was there with That's like a great. fistful of dogs and I was ready to start showing him how fun everything was. And he was just like, nope, I see something new and it moves in a cool way and I want to go stand on it. And like, right. how, it's great. Oh my gosh, how cool is that? And they demonstrate different things. They demonstrate <laughs> different um, insights about behavior on the planet. When you bring a rescue dog in who's had an unfortunate um, impoverished learning history, then the goal is to see how much we can recover that through mm -hmm. teaching and learning. When you have a puppy who's been raised in optimal conditions that are novel and vari variable like you're describing, that tells us what it looks like when you start early and don't have to recover from a unfortunate learning history. So each opportunity that you took to train a rescue dog teaches us something mm -hmm. um, about learning. That learning is always available to us. It is always involved in all behavior, even the genetically sourced behavior, more mm -hmm. or less, more or less, and that yeah. we can use it well. Better than I think any generation previous ever imagined, you know, they were the big genetics generation, my parents generation, mm -hmm. and they were thinking about genes as a blueprint fixed. And we now know for the last 30 years, we've known that genes are expressed or not based on what environmental input. They're not, they're mm -hmm. not a recipe either. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting, and I applaud you for gaining the skills with both kinds of mm -hmm. um, missions, mission statements, and hopefully you'll have opportunities yeah. to do both again. And isn't it funny, I'll kind of nudge you a little bit, that the breeder who is systematic, purposeful, does it right, great rearing history, gets called fancy pants instead of just the best Excellent. we can do, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. So we've yeah. got to get past that where mm -hmm. doing it the right way is something to feel embarrassed about. Yeah. You yeah, know, no, or, I, I'm so yeah. lucky that she she decided to let me have a puppy and that, oh my gosh, I, I mean, he's so great in so many ways. And it's it's really definitely opened my eyes to, you know, having come from working in a shelter for so long, I was hesitant to go with a dog from a breeder and especially now having had Niffler and he's about eight months old now and you know he's still got his things that we're working on but oh my gosh how incredible he is um it's really a testament to you know yeah. genetics and good rearing and good. why we like breeders which is not a direction I expected this uh this conversation to go into but how, how <laughs> yeah and that? to say oh an eight, eight month old still has his things I mean <laughs> That dog will have his things, right? Will have yes. his things um, for the rest of his life. Just like okay. I have my things, and that's a lifelong shifting pursuit. The things I have that I have to work on are ever-changing, but it's yeah. never done. So, right, training yeah. and learning is never done. And that's because the environment around us keeps changing. If it yeah. was the exact same environment every day, we could have a recipe for living through it. The fact of the matter is it's a much more demanding planet. And no sooner do you master a certain environment like COVID, then suddenly you're allowed to go back out again. And that's terrifying. So, yeah, yeah it's all about being prepared for living on a planet where things are changing moment by moment. It yeah. gives this enormous flexibility that is required of its populations in order to survive it.
Hey everyone, just popping into this episode with an update on our Patreon. We still have the $3 a month doggy detector level, which allows you to ask questions for me and the guests to answer each episode, but now also lets you join our monthly training video analysis calls. These calls are going to be recorded, of course, and we'll also publish the video afterwards for everyone to view and ask questions about prior to the call to ensure that all time zones can participate fully. So we'll basically publish the video we're going to analyze so that you can ask questions and view it and prepare ahead of time. Then we'll have the call where we talk about it. We can have beverages. It'll be a good time. And then all of that is going to be shared later. So you can participate before, during, and after. Again, just for three bucks a month. Now, at the $10 a month sensational scientist level, you get everything that we got before at the $3 level, plus you get to submit videos of your training sessions for those calls. So this is perfect for the aspiring canine conservationist, and your target odor doesn't really matter here as long as you do communicate what it is so we can think intelligently about your goals. Um, so this is going to be great for nosework competitors and other canine handlers as well, and we're really striving to make these video calls super kind and supportive and helpful, so um, it's going to be a nice safe place on the internet to get good feedback on your training sessions because I know how much of a struggle that can be, especially in the set work world. So then finally, the canine conservationist patrons get everything from those other two tiers plus a private 30-minute training call with me to go over whatever you're running into with your dog. That tier is just 25 bucks a month and that's cheaper than booking my time at journeydogtraining.com for behavior modification and that's just because I love you and I love my patrons. That's definitely something to check out. You can join that Patreon over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or at the link at canineconservationists.org. It's like a tiny link up in the top bar. And then we also drop that link into our show notes. So if you're listening on your podcast app, you should be able to find it just right from there. So thank you guys so much. And let's get back to the episode. Yeah, definitely. So I think let's let's wrap up a little bit here with, yeah. you know, we've, we've already touched on the idea of effectiveness not being enough, but let's kind of put a really fine point on that and talking about how, training with this least intrusive, minimally aversive hierarchy of behavior change is cannot just be, you know, kind um, and effective for our dogs, but is also, uh, I guess I want to hit on a little bit the idea of, and it's not just good for our training and it's not just good for our relationship with them, but it's actually really good for their quality of life and enriching their lives and how, again, that can then go back and feed into our work. Um right. So right. I, you know, I'd love to kind of let you respond to that poorly worded uh, question. No, no, it was well worded. It's just these are very thoughtful, thought provoking constructs for me. You're talking to someone who never sees anything easily. You know, when we think about what is it to be kind, some people think that free feeding is kind, and so we mm -hmm. see the obesity problem with our animals. Um, uh, you know, what does it mean to be um, too forceful or too coercive or to use positive reinforcement well. I guess what I'm saying is any procedure can be used poorly. You can make an animal too hungry and then using food as a positive reinforcement forcer is not kind or uh, depriving a dog of a preferred ball for too long might not be considered kind. So these are all things that require quite a lot of discussion. But to just put that point on the head of this pin, the ethical standard is required to be joined with our science procedures so that we're always doing things the best we can do. And by best, mm -hmm. what I mean is that leaves each individual having a voice, 
having some control over their own outcomes, which is what behavior has evolved to do. We were not evolved to just be pushed and shoved like a stone, you know, by the ocean, the shoreline. We're operators, all of us, all of the animal kingdom. We are operators. And when we use force and coercion unnecessarily, we are blocking the animal as operator of its own events. And that is not healthy for animals. Behavioral health comes from operating on your environment. And that means as much as we can shift our procedures to giving animals choice and control over those outcomes, the more behaviorally healthy the animals will be. Mm -hmm. So effectiveness is not enough when people Mm -hmm. say they always do it with a shrugging of shoulders. They go, well, as long as it worked. And Mm -hmm. that's really when I started to think about the hierarchy, because as long as it works is not good enough. It's 2021. (laughs) We're all getting together, science Mm -hmm. and, you know, behavior analysis, ethologists, uh, biologists, zoologists, dog trainers, giraffe trainers. We're all working together now. And the sum of coming together is so much greater than any of our parts. We know that we can teach without force and control, and that the use of that should be only very rare, mostly emergency procedures, dog going into the road, like kid going into the road. Um, But it means that people have to be willing to learn new things, and Mm -hmm. that's uncomfortable for people. So our job, Kayla, yours and mine and your listeners, is is to make is to apply the hierarchy to the humans we're interacting with as well. Mm -hmm. So that we make learning new things and discovering new insights about training as safe and as reinforcing as possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm glad you added that in. And, you know, I'm also glad that you Mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, the idea of, you know, sometimes... I think for me personally with my dogs, the vast, vast, vast majority of the times that I interact with them in a way that it involves positive punishment is a safety non-training sort of scenario. It's never right. part of my intentional training plan, right, but it does too. come in, you know, that, that sure. moment where, where my puppy is eyeing a Robin across the road right. um, and I don't have a leash on him because right. So you'll use the power of a stern voice or you'll grab up on the collar. Yeah. Yeah, And that, and maybe this is a good place to end too. That's, I think the metaphor of the trust account in the relationship Mm -hmm. bank is a good one that when Mm -hmm. you've got a history of positive reinforcement banked in that account, you can use that occasional scary stern voice or a grab and a shake because there's enough in there as a lifestyle that you can take a withdrawal occasionally and not bankrupt the relationship. Mm -hmm. But when we use force and coercion as our primary strategies, Mm -hmm. we end up with animals that behave and have emotional behavior that's very different than those that do, and it's unnecessary. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a great place to end it for today. Um, Do you have anything that you wanted to add um, before we go? And I will, of course, let let people know where to find you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And uh, I send out great admiration to your community who are doing such important work. I keep an eye on conservation dog successes, and um, I'm really proud to see those applications. So keep on going. 
Thank you. It's really, I mean, I'm, I'm the luckiest person in the world. It's the coolest job ever. Um, <laughs> no, so, my yeah. job is the coolest job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can agree to disagree. We're <laughs> too ha- happy professionals. Yeah. There we yeah. go. I, I, it's probably best that I don't have to fight Dr. Friedman for, for my job. <laughs> <laughs> Who has the best job. Yeah. All right, Kayla, thanks for the opportunity. Bye. Thank Bye-bye. you so much. Bye. Thank you guys so much for listening. Wasn't that a great conversation? I just, oh my God, I could talk to Dr. Friedman all day. She, gosh, she has such a soothing voice and she's so knowledgeable. And I love how she's kind of always in that teacher mode. You guys can hear her pushing at me and challenging me and you can hear me learning as we're talking, which is just, oh my gosh, it's just so cool. I'm grinning from ear to ear right now. Um, I hope you learned a lot too and you're feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your path and your skill set. As I said up top, up top, you can find show notes and extra information on this episode at canineconservationists.org. You can buy a Canine Conservationists t-shirt. You can join our Patreon. Um, and if you find us over on social media, so Instagram is the main one, but we also have a Facebook, a Twitter, and a TikTok. Um, you can ask us further questions or engage with me more on this episode. I love hearing from you and, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm psyched.